Philippians chapter 2, 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. We are here, Father, because we believe all of what your word has declared to be true. Especially that you sent your Son, fully God of fully God, and that he became man. Lord, we believe that he walked upon the earth, that 2,000 years ago he was crucified, though sinless, so that we could be freed from sin. Lord, the, our reason for being here is not simply a fascination with philosophy and truth. It's because all that we live for is bound up in what your word declares to be true. We believe because you have given us faith. And I pray that through hearing your word, that you would strengthen our faith. That we would be known as a people who live by faith. And so that we would, by our example of faith, compel others of the veracity of what we teach. We ask these things in your name. Amen. As Josh mentioned, um, the 31st of this month marks the 500th anniversary of the day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, thereby beginning the Reformation. And so to commemorate this time, we are, uh, are spending time looking at the five basic or a summary theological convictions of the Reformation, known as the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. And last week we looked at Sola Gratia, the unmerited favor of God that He gives us, enabling us to have spiritual life, regenerating us. And today we'll dive into the doctrine of Sola Fide, faith alone. In 1517, when Luther nailed these theses to the door of the Wittenberg church, it was when Luther was uh, a teacher in Wittenberg, a professor of Wittenberg, and he was teaching through the Bible. And the book he happened to be teaching through was the book of Galatians, which we're looking at today and which our scripture reading was from. And it was through examining this book that he felt compelled to write those 95 theses, those arguments combating some of the popular doctrines of the church at the time. And most of them had to deal with indulgences, but there was much more. Later on, Luther described this book of Galatians as mein Kot, mein Kot, which literally means my chain. And it was kind of a, there was a double meaning there because Kot, his, his wife's name was Katie, Katie, Catherine von Bura, von Bura. And uh, he was saying, in essence, this book is both 
his wife. It's like his wife to him, but it's also his chain in that it comforts him, encourages him, but also holds him fast to the truth. One biographer said that Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians happened to be his most significant work. In fact, aside from his translation of the Bible, that is what brought about the Reformation. Because that is what brought to light the doctrine of faith alone. And the driving issue in Martin Luther's life was to discover how he could be made right with God. And this goes back before he was a Christian. He said, while he was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other various rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. At another time, he said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not be sure that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmured greatly against him. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments without having God add sorrow upon sorrow by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Luther, by virtue of his own testimony, really tells us the nature of the problem. How can any man, with all their sin, make themselves right before God? And it was this question that drove Luther into the Bible to find an answer. That's why he was studying Galatians. And having found this longed-for treasure, this truth really catapulted him into the Reformation. This truth was so precious to him that he and, as well as the other reformers, could not compromise on it. There was no going back. Having seen what the Bible made so clear, they were not just dogmatic about the fact that we could be saved by faith alone. They were bulldogmatic. Because upon this doctrine, everything hinged. So let's examine just a little more closely what... The nature of our problem is the problem that good works can't save us. Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians because there were false teachers that had crept in amongst them. And they were exerting significant influence to the extent that some of the believers there were being tempted to actually abandon the faith. And that became very clear in Galatians 3.1 where which we read, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And at the very outset of the letter, he says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and would want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
So essentially what these false teachers were teaching was a different gospel. It could be described as a Christ and fill in the blank gospel. That is faith in Christ and particularly for the Judaizers, the, the, the false teachers in Galatia, they, a person needed Christ and they needed to follow the Old Testament laws. They taught that you needed both Christ and law. And what Paul demonstrates in this letter is that there's no amount of good works, either that, that the Pharisees come up with or that you in following what the Old Testament taught. There's no amount of good works, no amount of law keeping that can ever make a person right with God. One can only be saved by faith alone. And to believe differently is to believe a false gospel. And to believe differently, therefore, uh, to believe any other gospel will not save a person. It will damn them. So this is no light issue. This is no just doctrinal debate that you might hear about in some university. This is heaven and hell at stake. And that's why Luther was so dogmatic, as well as the other reformers, about this doctrine. Paul begins his explanation of this doctrine in chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So this shows that the Galatian churches were primarily made up of Jewish Christians. There were some Gentiles among them, but they were mostly Jewish. And he contrasts them with the Gentiles, saying that we're not like Gentile sinners. And his point is that the Jews knew of the law, unlike the Gentiles who had never received God's law. And so by virtue of their own behavior, they're not going to obey the law because they have no idea what the law says. So they just followed their own fleshly appetites and therefore they were sinners. So his point is not to bash the Gentiles, but rather to focus on the fact that the Jews having the law were able to recognize its insufficiency to make a person righteous before God. So Paul says, even though the Galatians are Jews, as Christians, they must come to recognize that no amount of law-keeping will make them right with God. And that is what is meant by the term justification. Justification is uh, from the Greek word dikaio, or dikaiosune. It just means to be declared righteous. It's the word for righteous. Unlike Greek, English doesn't have a verbal form for righteousness. Or else we'd say something like righteousified or righteousification. So it's a very good thing we don't have a word like that because we can't even say it. So the translators use a synonym for righteousness. Justice. Justice and righteousness mean the same thing. And they use its verbal form to justify. So justification sounds like a big religious word, but it simply means to declare somebody as righteous. To be declared not guilty. That you've done nothing wrong. How can God do that? Isn't it unjust of God to declare people who have done much wrong righteous? Well, that is the point of the book of Galatians is to explain that issue. As Paul suggests, 
the Jews recognized their problem was they needed to be made right with God. They had violated not just one law. They had violated a multitude of laws a multitude of times. And they've got to be made right with him. How do they do that? So they not only needed forgiveness, they needed righteousness. So the best of them, the best Jews, did the best they could to follow the law. With hopes that their best effort somehow might be sufficient for God to not judge them in his wrath. And such an approach is called legalism. So what legalism is, is the belief that following certain rules or laws is what makes a person right before God. Often religions, even churches, will come up with certain rules to follow that will guarantee a person's right standing before God. The medieval form of this heresy was called semi-Pelagianism. And this is what the Catholic Church taught, is that one must have faith in Christ and then perform good works to secure their salvation. So the, the, the Catholic Church taught that, yes, grace is necessary. Faith is necessary. But faith alone won't save a person. They have to have faith, and then after that, they need to perform good works, which will secure their salvation. They need Christ and the law. And this was a new kind of law established by the church. It was codified uh, by Peter Lombard, who was a medieval theologian, in his book called The Sentences. And he came up with seven sacraments, that if people followed these seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, confession, penance, marriage, and extreme unction, if a person followed that decently well, then they could secure their salvation. Lombard and the Catholic Church taught that if a person dedicated themselves to following the sacraments, that is what would secure their salvation. Faith and works. It did not teach that a person had to be born again. It did not teach that there had to be a transformation like Jesus taught Nicodemus. Instead, it taught that a person's best chance of overcoming judgment was to follow this set of rules developed by the church. It was a new law. There was no saving faith, no change. And in fact, none of these efforts had any impact on making anyone right with God. So even the best, most devoted Catholic, like Martin Luther, recognized it wasn't enough. So the church was like a physician that would give his cancer patients a placebo. Their system was completely powerless to change the problem. Sure, it might have a genuine psychological effect. It might make them feel better. It might give them a little hope to carry on. But it does nothing to solve the problem. And many other churches today teach teach something similar. Doing good things. Philanthropy. Service. But by by doing these things, that's what's going to make you right with God. That's what's going to make God approved of you. But such teaching is patently false. That is the point of Galatians. Recently, the Pew Research Survey or Pew, Pew Research Center surveyed 
Protestants and Catholics in the West to evaluate what the impact of the Reformation was 500 years later and consider some of its findings. It discovered that about half of U.S. Protestants, 52%, say that both good deeds and faith in God are needed to get into heaven, which is a historically Catholic position. The other half, 46%, say that faith alone is needed. These are Protestants. Only half believe a Protestant doctrine. In fact, it says just 30% of all Protestants affirm both sola fide and sola scriptura. A third. In nearly all of the European countries surveyed, majorities or pluralities of both Catholics and Protestants adhere to the traditionally Catholic view that both faith and good works are necessary to attain salvation. In, in fact, in every country except Norway, belief in sola fide is a minority view among Protestants. So this is a ripe issue today. And again, to believe this is not just to believe something different. It is damnable. To reject salvation by faith alone is a false gospel. And that's not me just being polemic and uh, dogmatic. It's, it's what Paul says. Galatians 1.9, as We have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned, is what it's saying. If they preach a gospel that says faith and works are necessary for salvation. So let's look at a little more in depth of what this doctrine teaches the principle that we are saved by faith alone. Paul says, So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So again, having realized that there was nothing that they could do to make themselves right before God, they turned to the only way of becoming righteous, through faith in Christ. And so the first thing we need to recognize about this saving faith faith is the object of saving faith. There is an object to the faith. That is, we are saved through faith in Christ. One must have faith in Jesus. So we're not simply saved by having faith, right? Because everybody has faith. Everybody believes in something. Some people believe that Baal is God. You could believe in Fluffy the Unicorn is God, but that's not going to save you. Having faith is not what saves, but what one's faith is in. One must have faith in Jesus. But we need to clarify this even more. For there are many other religions that believe in Jesus. Right? Muslims believe in Jesus. Hindus believe in Jesus. He's just one of many gods. So we're not saved merely by believing in Jesus, for even the demons believe and shudder. James 2.13. In fact, this is what most of my students, as I ask the question, what does a person need to believe to be saved? This is what they think. They just need to believe in God. They just don't have to be an atheist. As long as a person isn't an atheist, they're saved. 
No. You have to believe certain things about Christ. One must believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means that Jesus is God, that he is the only one who can save people from their sins. But even then, this needs to be clarified more. We must clarify that faith in him alone is what saved. And that's, that's the main point, of course, of Galatians. One must believe in faith alone that it justifies, not faith and works. And the false gospel that was being taught in Galatia and what was being taught in the church prior to the Reformation was Christ saves us and then we have to follow rules to secure our salvation. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, For indeed, even the papists, it's referring to Catholics, profess to be justified by faith. But this is only half the truth. And it is the rest of the picture which spoils the whole. Sure enough, they are persuaded of the fact that a man can be, cannot be accounted righteous before God unless Jesus is the mediator and unless that person rests upon him for salvation. The papists know this only too well. And yet they so often say, we are justified by faith, but not by faith alone. And that is the point with which they take issue. And this is the principal matter upon which we differ. Paul, however, shows their folly when he says, but by faith. For this expression implies that all that men bring to God to please him is rejected. The door is therefore tight shut to all merit. For Paul declares that the only way to come to God is through faith. In fact, any attempt to add to the work of Christ nullifies the work of Christ. Catch that. Any attempt to try to add to, to improve upon the work of Christ actually nullifies that work. Where do I get that? Well, Galatians chapter 5. He says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. In other words, faith, real faith, will demonstrate itself in love. So the reason such a teaching is an abomination is because it suggests that Christ's death on the cross wasn't good enough. Wow, that's impressive, Jesus. You were God and you died for me. But that can't be enough. I've got to add to it. I've got to add my own works. I've got to add my own merit. I've got to have something to boast in. I've got to get some credit. It suggests that Christ's death was unnecessary even. Paul says again in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And think about that. Nice try, Jesus, but what a waste. You wasted your time. Again, so this is no small doctrine. Hugh Latimer, who was burned at the stake with Nicholas Ridley days after Bloody Mary ascended to the throne, 
described the belief that Christ and works saves us as patching Christ. In other words, putting additional patches on Christ. So Christ is like a torn garment that needs to be patched up with our good works. And in a sermon he preached in 1552, he said, Therefore, let us study to believe in Christ. Let us put all our hope, trust, and confidence only in Him. Let us patch Him with nothing. For as I told you before, our merits are not able to deserve everlasting life. It is too precious a thing to be merited by man. It is His doing only. And it's because of this, Latimer says that Roman Catholic theologians that teach differently are the enemies of Christ. And he explains, for they reckon that their good works, they reckon that their good works have deserved heaven and everlasting life. This opinion is most detestable, abominable, and filthy in the sight of God. For it diminishes the passion of Christ. It takes away the power and strength of the same passion. It defiles the honor and glory of Christ. It forsakes and denies Christ and all his benefits. For if we shall be judged after our own deservings, we shall be damned everlastingly. So again, his point is, and why he was willing to go to the, to the stake for this doctrine, is because saving faith in Christ's death alone is the only thing that can make you right with God. You cannot add to it. And to attempt so is damnable. Because of what it says about Christ. Saving faith alone keeps you right with God. And it holds fast to the promise of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including our good works, or failure to have good works, will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So salvation can be found through faith alone. But what does such faith look like in our life when we have it? Like, How do we know? How do we know if we have false faith or genuine faith? What is the nature of saving faith? Well, that's what I want to look at with the rest of our time. The practice. This is what faith looks like in our life. In particular, saving faith is definitive. And what I mean by that is it defines us. Changes everything about us. I get this particularly from Galatians 2.20. Where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Saving faith is definitive. It is, we live by faith in Christ. It is definitive again in the sense that it defines us. Faith in God's promises ultimately determines how we live and what we will do. In fact, a Christian can be defined as one who lives by faith. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice that's present tense. 
They live by faith, ongoing. So saving faith is not just a one-time decision. It's life-transforming. It's life-defining. It is an embrace of Christ that then has a lasting and permanent effect. So turn to the book of Hebrews even. And if you look at, at the end of the book of Hebrews, particularly in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says the same thing in, in quite a remarkable way. He says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. Sorry, and preserve their souls. And then what's interesting is the very next chapter, chapter 11, begins by defining faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what follows is what is described as the hall of faith. Called, Paul, uh, sorry, the author of Hebrews illustrates throughout the Old Testament people who demonstrated the reality of their saving faith in decisions they made by the fact that they lived by faith. But speaking of the Old Testament believers, it brings up this question. If a person is saved by faith in Christ, how were Old Testament believers saved? I mean, that, they were before Christ. Most of what we understand about Jesus came years later, particularly in the New Testament. So how could they be saved by faith in Christ? Well, Old Testament believers, actually, weren't saved by law-keeping, they were saved in the same way we are, by faith alone. And to prove that point um, to the Galatians, Paul points back to Abraham. He says in Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was counted righteous not because of any law keeping. In fact, the law didn't come until hundreds of years later. So how could Abraham have been saved by any sort of work? It was not works. And, and, and God did this specifically. He saved Abraham by Abraham's faith before the law was there so that people would recognize a person is saved by believing what God says. Not by any work that they do. They do the good works because they believe what God says. It's the result of not the means to salvation. It was Abraham's faith that justified him for, before God. And this clarifies the nature of saving faith even more. Because it says that really saving faith, what saving faith is, is it's taking God at his word. Believing that what God says is true. And all of what God says is true. Saving faith takes God at his word. It's definitive and it takes God at his word. It believes in the gospel and then everything else revealed in scripture. Recall what Jesus said in John 10. He describes himself as the shepherd of the sheep. And how do the sheep respond to the shepherd? They hear his voice. 
They won't listen to the voice of a stranger. My sheep hear my voice and they follow after me. Saving faith is trusting Christ and his word. And that's very logical because if you believe God is who he says he is, if you really believe Jesus is who he says he is, then there is no way that you would completely ignore his instructions. However, one can be genuinely saved, that is, have genuine faith, and yet struggle to believe things in the Bible. Struggle to understand what God teaches. True Christians believe all of what God says, but that doesn't mean Christians don't struggle to understand. Where do I get this from? Second Corinthians, or sorry, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17, 15 and 17. Notice what Peter says. He says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Okay, it's okay that some things in the Bible are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that there's some things that are hard to understand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So struggling to understand a truth in scripture doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means you're willing to acknowledge your weakness. It's an acknowledgement of weakness. It's an acknowledgement that, that you're not God. That there are some things that are just difficult either emotionally or even intellectually to grasp. Num- numerous things. I mean, take for instance just the, the, the reality that God has always existed and will always continue to exist. And so will every man. You will never cease to exist. Ever. You will die. Then you'll rise again. And never die again. Now that's mind-blowing. But I say that with absolute confidence that it's true. Or take, how how do we understand both the sovereignty of God and all the suffering that's going on in the world? Now you can give a simple answer, but a simple answer, frankly, isn't sufficient to really, I think, give us, uh, to, to, to assuage all the pain of suffering. Even the doctrine of hell is troubling. How do we fit together predestination and free will? It's hard, hard to do. Even the concept of the Trinity. Now, any Orthodox believer believes in the Trinity. Try explaining it. So my point is, you can believe what the Bible says... And yet struggle to understand and still be a believer. But a true believer, saving faith, would not reject any part of the Bible. Would not say, yes, I know exactly what that says, but my God would never say that. What that's saying is, your God is not the God of Scripture. You don't have saving faith. You believe in some other God of your own fashion. See, as Christians, we simply believe what the Bible says, even if there are hard truths in it. But we keep pressing on, and we're wary, as Peter says, not to twist the Scriptures. 
We're wary, we're wary to, to communicate what the Bible says as it says it, even if it's hard to understand. And we believe what it says. So even though we were once led by the passions of our flesh, saving faith now determines what is true and what we choose to do with our life. Even when what God says seems to conflict with our experience. Which brings me to my, my, I think, one more point. Saving faith is audacious. It's audacious. What I mean is it believes often that which is unbelievable. And I get this from Hebrews, sorry, um, Romans chapter 4. In that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the the author of Hebrews lists, again, all these Old Testament believers. and And he starts with Abraham, the father of faith. And then Paul in Romans chapter 4 elucidates what this faith of Abraham looked like. What did this saving faith of Abraham look like? I mean, this is, in my opinion, Romans chapter 4, the best example of what it means to have saving faith. Romans 4.18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told. So shall your offspring breathe. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Saren's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You guys see that? He knew it was genetically, physically, I don't know what word to use, impossible For him to have a baby at a hundred years old. He knew that his wife had been barren for as long. And they had tried with all their heart to have a child. He knew it was impossible. And yet God said, Abraham, you will have a son. And I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham hoped in that promise against hope. That's saving faith. When you believe the promise of the Scripture, even if it conflicts with your experience and even your own understanding or your own emotions. Faith says, I will believe God's Word regardless of my own understanding. It takes God's word, takes God at his word regardless of the circumstances. But this hopeless situation was in reality the perfect setting for God to demonstrate his power and trustworthiness to all who might worship him. And this is the beauty of saving faith. When we're in the midst of a trial, and we, and we all go through these things. And it, it's impossible to see, God, how can you possibly be working this for good? We're tempted to question God's credibility. And when that happens, it's because we're tempted to put our confidence more in what we feel about our experience and understand than what, on God, what God's word says. And Abraham struggled with this temptation as well. Which is why he slept with Hagar. He was trying to bring about God's purposes in his own strength. 
And that is exactly why God waited to fulfill his promise until there was no earthly hope that it could be accomplished. And so it was when Abraham hoped against hope that God then demonstrated his power through him. So again, to hope against hope means we believe God, especially when life doesn't make sense. To take God as word despite circumstances. And in fact, it was during this time that Abraham truly glorified God. No unbelief made him waver considering the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God. You want to know how to glorify God with your life? Believe what he says. Believe what he says, despite what you feel, despite what you understand. Says, say, I know God's word is true, and I'm going to live in light of that truth. That is glorifying God. And that's how sola fide connects to sola de gloria. God is glorified when we exercise this kind of faith. Finally, and maybe most importantly for us, saving faith is not faith in faith. This is where a lot of people get tripped up, especially, I mean, genuine believers. Because what if after trusting in Christ, we begin to struggle with doubt? Some of my closest friends have been here. Where they, they wonder um, if they could be saved because they struggle with doubt. Deeply afflicted. But yet, this is when God's word and the beautiful truth of justification by faith alone becomes most assuring. It's to people who struggle with doubt, they most, of all people, of all Christians, they the most need to understand saving faith is not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ's work. Notice what John says in 1 John 3, 19 and 20. If I got that. Oh, I don't. Oh, bummer. Well, if you can bring that up there, it'd be helpful. Um, John says this in 1 John 3, 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Brothers and sisters, what, Paul's ta- what, what John's talking about is when your heart condemns you and says, oh, you, 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 look at what you did. Look at how you're living. You don't believe God. You can't be a believer. You look at you doubt. Because of your doubt, you must not be a Christian. But what John's saying is saving faith is not faith in our faith. It's faith in God's promises. That's what he says. God is greater than our heart. Abraham didn't believe in his own faith. He believed God. He believed God's word. So even if our faith wavers and our hearts condemn us, saving faith looks away from ourselves and at the work of Christ and his word. Saving faith is, again, looking away from ourselves and trusting completely in Christ. A friend of John Newton who was struggling with extreme doubt, wrote to him pleading for spiritual guidance. And the issue is she had, she had thought that she had committed the unpardonable sin. And she thought, of course, the unpardonable sin was struggling with deep doubt. Well, this is Newton's counsel to her. Indeed, I will not call it your thought. It's your temptation. You tell me you have children. Well, then you'll easily feel a plain illustration, which just occurs to me. Let's suppose a case 
which has sometimes happened. A child three or four years of age will say, while playing incautiously at a little distance from home, should suddenly be seized and carried away by a gypsy. Poor thing. How terrified, how distressed must it be. We can almost hear it crying. The sight and violence of the stranger, the recollection of its dear parents, the loss of its pleasing home, the dread and uncertainty of what is yet to befall it. It is a wonder that it doesn't die in agonies. But see, help is at hand. The gypsy's pursued, the child is recovered. Now, my dear madam, permit me to ask you, if this were your child, how would you receive it? Perhaps, when the first transports of your joy for its safety would permit you, you might gently chide it for leaving your door. But would you disinherit it? Would you disown it? Would you deliver it up again to the gypsy with your own hands because it suffered a violence that it could not withstand, which it abhorred, and to which it never consented? And yet, what is the tenderness of a mother, of ten thousand mothers, to that which our compassionate Savior bears to every poor soul that has been enabled to flee to Him for salvation. Let us be far from charging that to Him of which we think we are utterly incapable of ourselves. You see, what makes Newton so, Newton's counsel so effective is that he is both empathetic and yet un, unswervingly fixated on the truth that we are saved by faith alone. And because of that, where does he go? He goes right back to the Word. He fixes her mind on truth. He just gives her the Bible. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this about God? Do you believe what God's Word says about Him and the kind of God that He is? Notice how he finishes. It is said that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, that all manner of sin shall be given for its sake, that whoever comes, he will nowise cast out, and that he is able to save to the uttermost. Believe his word, and Satan shall be found a liar. If the child had deliberately gone away with the gypsy, had preferred that wretched way of life, had refused to return, though frequently and tenderly invited home, perhaps its parent in love might in time be too weak for the pardon of such continued obstinacy. But indeed, in this manner we have all dealt with the Lord. And yet, whenever we are willing to return, He is willing to receive us with open arms and without an upbraiding word. And then He cites Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. So again, in other words, saving faith is not faith in our faith. It's faith in God's word, in all that God has said. In particular, it's faith in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross to forgive our sin. And in being such, saving faith, again, is looking away from ourselves, our understanding, our emotions, our efforts in trusting completely in what God says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen the faith of your children here today through your word. That you would help them 
to fully recognize that you are fully trustworthy and that you hold everything in the palm of your hand and that you work all things together according to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. But I also pray for anybody here who may not have saving faith, that they would recognize that their religion has been false, that it's been based primarily in their own efforts and not in the gospel. And they would realize that they need to look away from themselves, that that truth would become powerfully clear. And like Martin Luther, it would then catapult them with boldness to embrace the gospel and then to go and preach it to every unbeliever they know. Lord, I pray that this would be a day where unbelievers are born again through the faith that you give us by your grace. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.